Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where Andrew Jackson and Jean Lafitte still meet up for a drink at the old absent house, and toddler Maurice Baird still visits with guests at the Hotel Monteleone, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas where a 19th century speaker of the house, John Wilson, still roams the halls of the old state house, and beer isn't the only spirit served at Vino's Brew Pub. Thank you for joining us for episode 27, where we're going to look at a category of cases involving the concepts of premeditation and deliberation. Premeditation requires that a person consider a criminal act prior to committing it. It does not require a specific plan or even a foolproof plan. Deliberation is the consideration of an act and its consequences prior to following through and committing the act. There's no specific time frame necessary for either premeditation or deliberation, and those can occur in minutes or seconds during the course of a crime. Proof of premeditation and deliberation is also generally proven with circumstantial evidence. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. And Michael conserving his voice tonight, so we won't be hearing too much from him. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Uh, if I can just get o- over this stupid allergies, we'd be fine. I know. You probably need a good rain in... Um, in uh, Arkansas yeah, that's to wash exactly all the pollen away. Hopefully, hopefully we're going to get it tomorrow. Uh, they've actually moved Halloween, I guess, in the trick-or-treaters to tonight. So, Fingers Oh, up. really? Okay. All right. Well, I guess we can get started with uh, our topic for tonight, premeditation and deliberation. Uh, again, as... Uh, as I said, there's there's a lot of misconceptions that premeditation has to be a good plan that would keep the person from getting caught. And, and when you, you deal with cases where uh, a person is convicted of first-degree murder uh, because of premeditation or there's evidence of premeditation, 
people think, well, that wasn't a good plan because they got caught. And, again, it doesn't require a foolproof plan. It doesn't require weeks or months of planning to commit the crime, whether it's robbery or murder or just about anything. Uh, it can be can occur within minutes or seconds during the crime in progress. And sometimes it's the difference between striking a person once with a weapon or striking them ten times. So that's uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And then deliberation basically means that an intent to kill or an intent to commit a criminal act was formed uh, after thinking about the act and the consequences of the act, and then going ahead and doing it anyway. Uh, Walking into a bank and seeing an armed guard and saying, oh, maybe this isn't a good idea, but then robbing the bank anyway. So that's um, that in a nutshell. Any questions? If you have questions, please call in. Um, Again, Michael's not Michael's not up to playing devil's advocate tonight. So if you don't call in, you're going to listen to me talk all night. All right, so let's go into some of the cases that <clears throat> where courts have looked at uh, claims that evidence of premeditation was not sufficient and found that it was. One of the seminal cases, and if you do a lot of legal research, uh, one of the cases you'll see the name of a lot is Jackson versus Virginia. And that is a U.S. Supreme Court case. The uh, uh, petitioner, Supreme Court James A. Jackson, was convicted of first-degree murder at a bench trial in a Virginia court. And his direct appeals and state post-conviction claims, as well as his initial federal habeas claims, were not sufficient. Uh, Mr. Jackson was challenging the uh, sufficiency of the evidence against him uh, proving premeditation because that also makes a difference between first-degree and second-degree murder. Uh, First-degree requires premeditation, Second degree in most states does not require premeditation. And so he was challenging the sufficiency of the evidence of premeditation. The facts of the case, um, he shot and killed a woman and her body was found in the secluded church parking lot a day and a half after she was killed. Uh, that pretty much wasn't disputed. After shooting the lady, Mr. Jackson drove her car to North Carolina and then made a short trip to Florida where he was arrested several, several days later. Um, he did make a post-arrest statement admitting to shooting the victim, but he claimed that the shooting was accidental. And um, so that's the basis for his claim. If he says it's accidental and it was accidental, they can't convict him of first-degree murder. That's not always the case. Sometimes the evidence 
that is found in connection with the investigation refutes a claim that the shooting is accidental. Uh, he, uh, you know, a, a lot of times when, when a person claims a gun went off accidentally, they'll have a an expert who comes in and says, well, the, the trigger pull on that particular firearm is X pounds pressure per square inch. And that pretty much negates the thought that an unintentional or accidental shooting occurred. Um, and after examining the case, the U.S. Supreme Court did find that there was sufficient evidence of premeditation based on the circumstances of the crime, the circumstances under which the victim's body was found, and um, the... That's why I wish I had Michael tonight. Um, My brain went blank. The circumstances under which the body was found and which the crime was committed supported a finding of premeditation that negated uh, Mr. Jackson's claims of an accidental shooting. So uh, that is basically this case defined sufficiency of the evidence and is still cited today when courts look at whether a criminal conviction is based on sufficient evidence or not. Um, So that is the Jackson case. And our next case is going to be uh, State of Florida versus Robert Preston. And this is also... Uh, you see these most most commonly with murder cases because, again, premeditation is the difference between first-degree or capital murder in most states and second-degree murder. Uh, Preston was convicted on counts of premeditated murder, felony murder, committed in the course of a robbery and uh, during the course of a kidnapping. Um he challenged the sufficiency of the evidence at his trial. Uh, He had been, let's see, he kidnapped a woman and her body was found in a field in Seminole County. Um, She was a night clerk at a convenience store and she'd been found missing from the store at 3.30 a.m. the day before. Uh, Mr. Preston was arrested on an unrelated charge the following day. And while he was in custody of Seminole County Sheriff, uh, evidence was recovered from his clothing. And um, there were several detached food stamp coupons in the bedroom at his mother's house, uh, which apparently tied him the, the numbers on the coupons uh, were consistent with numbers of food stamps taken in by the store. So that tied him to the uh, robbery of the store. And um, there was uh, hairs that originally that were found to have, the victim was a potential source of the hairs. Uh, this was 1984, so the language used was that could have originated from the victim, but 
the language has changed. Now it's consistent with the victim. Um, and so that was, uh, let's see, um, he challenged a bunch of things, but the evidence of premeditation was one of the things that he challenged. And he was also, uh, one of the claims he made was that he could not form the intent because he was, uh, there was a mental issue that meant that he could never form an intent to commit a crime, to commit murder. But uh, the court in Florida found that there was substantial evidence from which premeditation could have been inferred by the jury. The victim was stabbed multiple times. Uh, The injuries were particularly brutal. And the medical examiner found that the murder weapon was probably a knife of four or five inches in length. The court found that a deliberate use of this type of weapon was enough to support a finding of premeditation. The victim was nearly decapitated when her throat was cut. So um, that is all evidence that supports the finding of the trial court. And the jury and Mr. Preston went on. This case uh, This case was decided by the Florida Supreme Court in 1984, but um, he continued uh, challenging up until 2015, and the courts have not reversed his conviction. So he is likely on Florida death row as we speak. And uh, again, so that the evidence of premeditation in that case was the type of wounds sustained by the victim, the brutality of the killing, and the uh, weapon used in the murder. Um, Those are kind of, the weapon used is physical evidence, but the the inference that you draw from that evidence is circumstantial. So it's it's basically circumstantial evidence. Premeditation and deliberation are also more or less states of mind. So you'll, you'll often see uh, in Jody Arias's case, I never planned to kill Travis. I didn't go there wanting to kill Travis. But, you know, the, the things that she did, the steps that she took prior to arriving in Arizona suggest that there was a plan to kill Travis at that time. And um, we've talked about Jody Arias's case. So, again, it's, it's a state of mind. It's generally proven by circumstantial evidence. And uh, sometimes the persons or, or advocates for the uh, for the people convicted will claim that the evidence isn't sufficient to prove premeditation because it could be explained away in other other ways, and um, the jury, of course, is open to explaining it away in that way, but most of the time they don't. All right, the next case comes from Arkansas, and it is uh, Richard Otis Carmichael. It is an appeal from Pulaski County. So this is Michael's stomping grounds. Um, 
And this is a case where the Arkansas State Supreme Court found that premeditation could be inferred from the cause of death, which in this case was strangulation. Um, That it is also, they found that it was usually inferred and that it's not required to exist for a particular length of time. It can be formed in an instant and is rarely capable of proof by direct evidence. Uh, Mr. Carmichael's case involved a capital murder um, in which he killed a woman by the name of Terry Curtin. Um, Police responded to a call from Mr. Carmichael at his residence and found the victim's body on a couch. Appellant told the officers that after a day of drinking, he'd gone to sleep and awoke to find Miss Curtin unresponsive. He also volunteered that he had not killed her, a statement which officers found to be odd because her death was at that time considered only suspicious, not a homicide. Um, during the course of the investigation, the investigators conducted several interviews and Uh, Carmichael gave a more detailed statement to the investigators about the events that occurred that day. And um, in that statement, he said that he invited the victim over, that they got drunk and had sex. Uh, He said they both fell asleep, or he fell asleep, and when he awoke, he found blood on the floor and on the toilet seat and he couldn't rouse Ms. Curtin. The medical examiner determined that the cause of death was uh, strangulation, and he ruled that the manner of death was homicide. So um, after a search of the appellant's, uh, Carmichael's apartment, they found evidence and used that as a basis for charging him with capital murder. Uh, Again, he was challenging the sufficiency of the evidence and claiming that um, there wasn't sufficient evidence of premeditation or deliberation to support his uh, conviction, but the Arkansas Supreme Court found that the premeditation and deliberation was supported by sufficient evidence uh, based on the manner the cause of the victim's death is strangulation because that's an act that takes several minutes. You can stop it at any time and the only reason to continue it is if you intend to cause death. So that is it for uh, Mr. Carmichael. His sentence was upheld. He was sentenced to life in prison so he was not um, he was not on death row. And our next uh, case is from Texas. Uh, Adam Kelly Ward, he shot and killed a code inspector in Commerce, Texas in uh, 2005. Uh, Mr. Mr. Ward had a chaotic upbringing and his uh, he exhibited problems 
at a very young age. Uh, he was diagnosed as, I think, bipolar and put on prescription medication at about three or four years old. So he had some some pretty severe emotional issues going on. One of the problems, I think, though, is that his parents did not follow through with getting him counseling and medication and the things that he needed in order to control that emotional, those emotional issues to go to school and to be a productive member of society. Uh, instead, he was pretty much allowed to act out and wreak havoc and quit school and, and do what he wanted to do uh, rather than his parents getting him help. So um, on June 13, 2005, Walker, who was a code inspector, Michael Walker, was at the Ward property, which had a history of code violations going back several years. Uh, he photographed the latest violations. Adam Ward was outside washing his truck or his car, and he engaged in a verbal altercation with Mr. Mr. Walker. And then while Mr. Walker was waiting for police to come assist him in doing his job as code inspector, uh, and Ward's father tried to reason with Walker and tried to say, you know, we need to talk about this. You don't need to do this. Uh, Adam Ward went back into the home and came out with a 45 caliber pistol, which he then used to shoot Mr. Walker nine times. Uh, At one point, he was chasing Mr. Walker around and shooting him. It was a very brutal, uh, brutal killing. And uh, Mr. Ward was charged with capital murder and tried. Uh, They did raise the mental health issues at trial, but um, apparently the jury did not find that it it was a mitigating factor. Uh, One of the other things is that Ward claimed self-defense. He claimed that Walker was armed. He claimed that um, Walker was threatening him and that he was just defending himself. And um, that also was not a defense that the jury found to be very credible. And, of course, when you shoot somebody nine times, generally self-defense is very hard to believe because shooting them one time generally enough. And um, so uh, that was, again, that Mr. Ward challenged his his conviction and sentence uh, through state and federal courts and was not successful and was ultimately executed, uh, I think, in 2015. Uh, But again... You know, with the, with Mr. Ward, the acting action of going into the house and getting a 45 caliber pistol, and then shooting the victim nine times was found to be sufficient evidence to negate his claims of self-defense and prove 
premeditation, making it a, a – and this was also a capital murder because Mr. Walker was a city employee doing his job at the time he was killed in Texas. Capital murder statute covers that um, that scenario. So um, now we move on to a case from Michigan. Um, you, uh, Mark Stephen Unger who was uh, convicted in 2008 of uh, murder of his wife, Florence, in 2003. Um, Basically, Mr. Unger took his uh, family on vacation at Lower Herring Lake, a resort in Watervale, Michigan. And... um, there was a boathouse near the cottage where they were staying, and on the deck, uh, on the roof of the boathouse was a wooden deck, and the vacations would, vacationers at Watervale would congregate there. But their visit was in October of 2003 in Michigan, so they were there in an off season, and there weren't other any other guests staying at the resort at that time. Mr. Unger and his wife were alone on the deck on the evening October 24th. Uh, defendant told the police and several family members or family friends that the victim asked him to go back to the cottage to check on their kids. And the defendant said that when he, he went back to the college, cottage, put the kids to bed, and that when he returned to the deck, his wife was gone. During the search the following morning, uh, Someone came to Mr. Unger and reported that his wife's body had been found. And lo and behold, he walks to this exact spot in the lake where her body had been found, even though he had not been told where the body had been found on the lake. And it was not visible from where he was given that information. So, um, uh, so that, that kind of, um, that didn't didn't help him that he was able to go to where the victim's body was without having been told that it was there. Um, the uh, police in their uh, investigation they found a, there was a concrete pavement on the below the deck, and they found a large blood stain on the pavement. Uh, They also found one of the victim's earrings, one or two candles, and a broken glass candle holder. There was no trail of blood between the blood stain on the concrete and the edge of the lake, and the railing surrounding the rooftop deck wasn't damaged, uh, was, was damaged and bowed out toward the lake. And, you know, you have wife ends up in the lake, husband is pretty much, you know, going to be the prime suspect because nobody else was there. Um, So Mr. Unger was arrested and charged with with first-degree premeditated murder. And uh, the victim's cause of death was determined by the medical examiner to be traumatic brain injury sustained when she impacted the concrete pavement. 
uh, another pathologist believed that the victim died not from the head injuries, but had drowned after being dragged or moved into the lake. Um, the district court had excluded the second opinion uh, and determined there was no admissible evidence of premeditation. And so then the uh, Mr. Unger was bound over for trial on a charge of second-degree murder. So I guess this was the preliminary hearing, and the uh, Mr. Unger was challenging the first-degree murder charge. Uh, the Michigan Appellate Court, um, they apparently, by the time of trial, the second opinion about the cause of death had been deemed to be admissible, and so it was used at trial. And uh, so Mr. Unger was actually challenging the second hearing, which got that expert evidence into the into the trial because it, that was the basis of the first-degree murder conviction. Um, and that was the uh, sufficiency of the evidence as found by the court on appeal they court found, of course, that there was motive to kill the victim, although motive is an essential element of the crime. Uh, it is relevant in a prosecution for murder. Uh, the victim had filed for divorce days before her death. She'd served defendants and divorce attorney with interrogatories asking about defendants' addictions. He had been in residential treatment and his possible misuse of marital assets. Um, and while the victim was committed to ending the marriage, the proof also established that the defendant was strongly opposed to the idea of divorce. Uh, the proof also showed that defendant had threatened to take sole custody of the children and take the marital home if the victim further pursued the divorce. Those are all evidence of marital discord, and they, those are evidence that is evidence that is uh, admissible to establish motive. And establishing motive can also establish premeditation or planning, deliberation prior to killing the victim. Um, there, as far as the uh, evidence of premeditation. Um, hey, Lisa? Yeah. Uh, I just got a message from Brad. Uh, he asked me if you're familiar with uh, the case, and I'm going to totally pronounce this, uh, Berube versus State 5SO.3D734, and then it says Florida 2nd DCA 2009. No, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, I'll ask him. Uh, I'll ask him about it here in a second. I just wanted to butt in real quick. I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Tell Brad to call in. 
Um, all right, so where were we? We were talking about um, uh, Mr. Uh, Unger, who killed his wife in at a resort in Michigan. Um, let's see. The, another issue that the Michigan courts addressed was consciousness, consciousness of guilt, which is a really interesting, uh, a, another really interesting concept. But uh, uh, we won't go into that right now. And I'm looking through, and I don't. Um, a lot of these other issues are are not really dealing with premeditation. Maybe this wasn't the right case because it's a long opinion. Um, uh, So anyway, this is, uh, again, the Michigan Court of Appeals found that there was sufficient evidence of premeditation presented at trial. And some some of the motive circumstances can be found, can be, can serve as evidence uh, of premeditation because a lot of times, again, because it's circumstantial, the history between victim and assailant is an important part for determining who would have a motive to kill a victim and why that victim may have been killed. So uh, that is Unger versus... Michigan versus Unger, and now we move on to uh, Idaho versus Adamchik and Brian, Tori Adamchik and Brian Draper. Uh, A lot of, some people may have heard about this case. It involves the murder of a young girl, a young woman named Cassie Jo Stoddard in Idaho. She was house-sitting for a, uh, a family member, and Mr. Adamchik and Mr. Draper visited her on the evening of her murder and returned hours later and stabbed her to death. And um, she, uh, one, of the, one of the things police found when they eventually arrested Mr. Adamchik and Mr. Draper were videotapes which showed them gleefully discussing prior to the murder and um, uh, after the murder, discussing the murder. So um, uh, this is, uh, it was on ID a, a couple weeks ago. And the uh, Mr. Adamchik and Mr. Draper are both juveniles, and I believe that they are uh, currently challenging their sentences. Uh, but again, the, the, this videotape uh, is Alisa? a tape. Yeah. Apologies. What you got? For button again. Uh, Brad's on. He wants to talk about that case. If that's okay. Sure. That's great. Okay, I'll bring Hey, Brad. Okay, great. Now, how are you doing, Lisa? Hey, Brad. I'm doing great. How are you? 
Oh, you know, <laughs> middle-aged and overweight, but it's all good. Oh, yeah, I'm, I've am i been there. I, I've been there for a long time. It's okay. <laughs> well, well uh, what got me interested is uh, besides, uh, you know, your your all show that, you, that you've been doing here is, uh, you know, I saw that you were talking about premeditation and deliberation. I believe, uh, I, yeah. I'm hoping I got that right. And yeah. so just to clarify in my own head, I typed in, you know, the meaning of premeditation and I typed in, you know, the, the other one and the interesting thing, and I shared it with you on messenger, um, is that case that Michael read to you where it, it's, it's interesting what constitute premeditation because as I was listening to the first, you know, I, I got home a little later than normal. Uh, but as I was listening, I was like, what constitutes premeditation? I mean, you know, is there a, you know, is there a timeline on premeditation? Like, you know, me and Michael get into an argument and it gets heated. And then within a, a five to 10 second window, I choose to, you know, do whatever, which right. results in right. you know, his, you know, passing. Does that constitute premeditation? And this case that I just happened to run across over on courtlistener.com, it's actually through the um, appeals court of Florida, and it's really interesting here. Um, yeah. I know you probably, you know, I know you said you hadn't seen it yet, but it was basically they found the uh, Leo gentleman. Uh, guilty of first-degree murder um, and a life sentence, and he argued against it, saying that it was there was improper present sufficient evidence of premeditation. And I believe that the the district court of appeals in Florida Second District said the reason that they found premeditation to be adequate was because he apparently shifted and changed the phone cord or the object of which he strangled the person. And I was like, okay, see, I can understand the premeditation in that, but, and I know there's no timeline on it. So I was kind of, you know, I I hate to throw that at you, like a case you're not familiar with, but you know, it kind of goes with the whole thought. I mean, we're talking about premeditation being applied within a, what, second, you know, not even very long. And I guess, and so I guess Michael and I, that it has to be, and, and there's a misconception that, that, that premeditation, it has to be a foolproof plan. You know, if it turns out to be a dumb plan and the, the perpetrator ends up being caught because of their plan, then that's, you know, of course, who would do something that stupid? He wasn't really premeditating. He wasn't really thinking. But, um, no, and it can be the time it takes to walk. If you and Michael are in an argument in the kitchen and you pick up a knife and stab him, sorry, Michael, I love you, but, um, and you pick up a knife and stab him, that's manslaughter because it's a rash, impulsive act. But if you two are arguing in the living room and then Michael walks in the kitchen, gets a knife, and comes back and stabs you, that's premeditated because he had to consider going and getting the knife and then what he was going to do with the knife once he had it. 
And it now, is. Now, let me ask you, uh, are there now, Ruby, Go ahead, I'm sorry. But Baruby was reversed because prior bad acts were erroneously admitted. Because apparently Mr. Baruby had a history of, I just skimmed the opinion, but Mr. Baruby apparently had a history of uh, similar attacks on other women that were, uh, those were admitted under what Florida calls the Williams Rule. Um, right. And, and that's where, you know, obviously your background is, Vastly, you know, superior to mine in, in case law. So, <laughs> I just thought right. it was interesting that uh, there was. A, and I, I wanted to ask you now on premeditation. Let's just. I hate to use Michael as an example because, um, you know, I'm in the same vicinity as. So if anything bad happens, I swear to God, I didn't plan anything. But. Um, <laughs> yeah, but now let's say that there's a feud like let's just. For example, if you have two roommates that live together and, you know, they're they're stuck in a lease for, you know, however long and they uh, there's documented cases of the, of the two of them within, you know, getting into it with each other or whatnot. And one night it goes a little further than it normally has. And let's say that, you know, something happens. Now, can there be premeditation based on, uh, a history of, of indifference between the two of them or anything like that? It it would depend if one has has said many times, I'm going to kill you, and then uh, maybe kills you and, and dumps your body off the interstate. And, you know, sometimes after the crime doing things that keep, can keep you from being identified as the killer can also evidence a plan. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to go dump him out, off this exit. It's in a bad part of town. I'm going to tell people he did drugs and he was always down there trying to get drugs. Um, sometimes people will uh, start telling those kind of stories about the victim before the victim's killed. So they're planting a seed that uh, for when their plan is done. And it, it depends. It is all on 100% of the time it's actually case by case. You can't say in one case what is premeditation is going to definitely be premeditation in another case. It, it's so, you know, based entirely on the facts of each individual case. So obviously whoever... If it were in just a case that probably the general population would know, uh, not something as obscure as this Barub case, but, uh, uh, you know, if if it were found sufficient evidence that O.J. Simpson committed the crimes, that was that would then constitute premeditation, correct? Well, it would be uh, the planning of the crime. That he went out and or, bought Or could they get away the with? Or could they get away with he, the heat of the moment? You know, seeing well, another man no, over because, there who got jealous. No, because he he arranged the uh, you know his alibi, and okay, he snuck back onto the grounds of his uh, 
his estate on Rockingham, he parked his car where it wouldn't be seen. Um, he, I think, as as I recall from from reading and from talking to Rod Angler, he actually came into Nicole's property from a back gate that was broken. So he snuck onto the property. And that that can be planning. Find it find a way an access to the property that, you know, somebody wouldn't wouldn't expect you to come from. Like I said, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a foolproof plan either. It can be a horrible plan. Uh, in the Jody Arias case, it was purchasing three gas cans in order to avoid stopping, having to stop for gas while she was in Arizona. So that down the road, she could say, oh, no, I wasn't in Arizona. I don't remember the details of that as far as how they, it led back to her, but. I should because I followed it, but I don't. Well, they they found her uh, a mixture of her DNA with his DNA. They found a palm print that was hers, and they found pictures of her uh, naked, buck naked, uh, on his camera taken that day. Um, and then they also found accidental pictures that were taken during the course of the murder. So the gentleman that uh, there was that we did a show with uh, the, the the guy in Texas the the um, oh my goodness what is his name uh, uh, Rodney, Rodney Reed. Reed yeah now what was he charged with was there premeditation in that well he he was actually charged with capital murder based on the fact that Stacy Stites died. After he, or as in the course of him raping her, he kidnapped and raped her. So that was more capital murder in the course of a felony, another felony. Premeditation, plans, and deliberation weren't involved. I am so glad there's people like you because this is uh, the, 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 I'm guessing that premed is, 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 Constitutes first degree murder, or I mean, premeditation in most states. Yeah, in in most states, premeditation is required for a first degree murder conviction. Um, a second degree murder is a murder that's committed without without premeditation or malice of forethought. And and a lot of the definitions. Yeah, also refer to intent. You have an intent to kill the person or bring about the person's death. And which which uh which charges are does the death penalty apply to? It Honestly, varies from state to state. In in t- states like Texas and I think Arkansas, they call it capital murder. And that's a victim under the age of six or a police officer or firefighter or EMT while they're performing their job duties. Um, 
during the court. It, it can also be capital murder. Could be during the course of another felony. So with Stacy Stites, it was abduction and rape. Hmm. Um, uh, another uh, another type of case where premeditation would come in would be a murder for hire. Because generally there's planning involved and telling the hitman, okay, he's going to be at this place at this time on this day and arranging for the hitman to be there to take the person out. And so no, the person no, arranging no, the hit. No, no, I was going to say, I don't want to take you off the, the, the rails of where your show is going. I just, oh, no, no. Case, no, this is great. I in the case of you, you mentioned the hitman, in the case of a hitman, do both the 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 hitman and the, I don't know what you would call the arranger, um, do they both, are they both charged with, with the same crime or... Or is there different? Is it like the one that actually did not physically yeah. commit the crime? Do they get something? Obviously, it would have it, to be just as severe as the actual crime itself, I would imagine. It it varies from state to state. Uh, in some states, the person who arranges the, mur- the murder is charged with solicitation to commit murder. However, they can also be charged with murder. Because you don't have to actually commit the murder to be culpable for murder. Um, a lot of, luckily, I think probably about 60% of the time, arranged murders are thwarted by police coming in and getting, you know, an undercover officer to act as a hitman and gathering evidence and then they're able to charge the person trying to arrange the murder with solicitation rather than having a murder actually carried out. Now, if a murder is carried out, they will charge uh, first-degree murder or capital murder. And that's, uh, again, capital murder has a uh, also covers murders committed for pecuniary, pecuniary gains which is in order to get some benefit or money or something, like killing somebody, a wife killing a husband for an insurance policy or a wife killing a husband to take control of all of his assets. That's, um, it's, it's interesting, but, and it's, a, it's, you, I mean, would you agree that it's a, is it, is the line between pre-med and, I guess, whatever, normal, um, or, you know, non-premeditation, it's it's very fine, is it not? Yeah, I mean, it is pretty fine. And, and both sides, is it not? Yeah. Um, and what can, you know, like what sometimes is a uh, – it ends up being a compromise. Like we talked about Betty Broderick last week, she was charged with first degree murder, but the jury her at her second trial, they came up with a compromise verdict of second degree murder. Because while the majority of the jurors felt that she was guilty of first degree murder, there were jurors who felt that she was guilty of manslaughter 
because they felt that the history of the divorce between Betty Broderick and her former husband was such that Betty was kind of driven to kill and was not um, was not acting with intent to kill. Even though I mean, you know, guess, when you go into you know when when you go into somebody's bedroom at five thirty in the morning with a thirty eight caliber revolver and you fire at the people in the bed, I would say that's a pretty clear intent to kill. So now but, is there um, I guess pre med does fall under the okay, just a, a I guess a, a point of example and it may be that case you were talking about. Um but there's a woman that's been married to someone for years, and and obviously, let's say within the last five or six years, there's been a, a down a decline in their marriage, and there's abuse and whatnot, and and she decides one night after he's done did what he's done, or you know he's got through roughing her up or whatever, putting into it, she decides that she's going to kill him. And she carries through with it on the same in the same night within a you know ten minute window, just for example's sake. Now, I mean, is that would that constitute premeditation, or are there other circumstances that would lessen that? That probably would constitute premeditation. Um, however, with the if there's an established uh, if there's evidence establishing a domestic violence situation, that's something that can mitigate. And so even though, yeah, technically she premeditated it, you know, she went out and bought a gun. They didn't own a gun. She went out two weeks before and bought a gun and just had decided when she was going to, you know, shoot him. Um, Right. Or then went and shot him on impulse. And a lot of times, too, it can depend entirely on how how she handles it. If she shoots him and calls police and says, he was beating me, I was sick of it, and I shot him, that can be, you know, that can be seen as maybe the domestic violence is what led to the shooting, and it wasn't really something that she planned for weeks in advance or for days in advance, and it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. Um, but if she says somebody broke in and shot him and tries to pin it on you know, somebody else, then you can look at the circumstances as being more indicative of a more serious level of murder than a spur of the moment, he's beating me, I'm tired of it, and I shot him. Okay. So, and you know, like I said, it depends. If, you, if, if she calls the police and says somebody broke in and tried to rob us and shot my husband, and he's dead, he can't say she shot him. Uh, then, you know, it's going to look like maybe it was something she planned. Because premeditation is entirely circumstantial because it is a state of mind. 
Well, right. you're not well, going to have. I appreciate your time, and I don't mean to. to, to oh, in no. all that. I'll definitely be calling back in, but I've got to run and take care of some business. But I will definitely be listening to the rest of the show. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Brad. Appreciate it. You have a great night, Lisa. All right. You too. Talk to you later. All right. That was great. That was yeah, that was great. That's yeah, we're talking about it. It was. It was very interesting. I appreciated him uh, bringing up that Baruti case because that was interesting. That you know, uh, the court in Florida found that the evidence of premeditation was sufficient, but then they reversed it because there was an error in admitting evidence of prior uh, crimes or incidents with other women to prove that he was the one who committed this particular murder. So Absolutely. You want to go ahead and take you want to oh bless your heart. Do you want to go ahead and take the break real quick? Yeah, we can. I'll go ahead and do it. All right, great. We'll be right back. Looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub On Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub On Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub On Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
talking about Tori Adamchik and Brian Draper in Idaho. They murdered Cassie Joe Stoddard and they filmed themselves prior to the murder talking about the murder, how they were going to commit the murder and identifying Cassie by name. Uh, This evidence was found by police and used to prosecute them for Cassie Joe's murder, and uh, you can't get much more, much better evidence than videotape of the killers discussing their plans to commit murder, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. Um, so they were, of course, found guilty, and their convictions have been upheld. Excuse me, in the uh, Idaho State Courts. Um, the Idaho Court of Appeals, or the Supreme Court rather, uh, affirmed their convictions in 2011 and 2012. They are probably going to continue appealing these murders, uh, murder convictions, for many years to come. And I believe there's also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they were both minors and are challenging their sentences. Um, so that is that is uh, Mr. Draper and Mr. Adamchik. So um, now we're going to move on to another Miss Michigan case, Karen Greer. And give me just a second. Um, he was convicted of a murder in 20 that occurred in 2014. Uh, and uh, he was actually convicted of second-degree murder in Michigan and possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. Uh, this was a, a, a robbery and... Um, Haven uh, Karen Greer. So this is second degree. Um, I don't know why I even have this one. Because <laughs> it obviously didn't have premeditation. Uh, all right. The next case is out of California. Um, Sergio Nelson was convicted of first degree murder of uh, Robin Shirley and Lee Thompson. And uh, he was actually convicted based on multiple murders and lying in wait, which are uh, under California's statute. Uh, he was sentenced to death after a second penalty trial and is challenging his conviction uh, in the Supreme Court of California. Uh, these murders occurred in 1993. Uh, Nelson had resigned from his job at Target because he didn't receive a promotion. Uh, Shortly before 4 a.m. on October 2nd of 1993, he shot and killed Robin Shirley, the woman who 
got the promotion he believed he deserved. And Lee Thompson, a co-worker who had defended Miss Shirley when Nelson harassed her about the promotion. Uh, one of the... Uh, one of the things that his uh, Mr. Nelson's attorneys were using was, again, his emotional issues prevented him from being able to form the intent to commit first-degree murder. So uh, he had a long history of issues with Miss Shirley and uh, other employees at the Target store. And... Um, He was uh, he was arrested apparently the day of the murder, so the history didn't help him. And um, he uh, he claimed it was a spontaneous act uh, committed without premeditation or deliberation. And the California Supreme Court found that there was evidence of premeditation and deliberation. And, uh, let's see. Um, these murders were committed in the target. Uh, parking lot and so uh, so that's that's Mr. Nelson's case and then finally we have uh State of Minnesota versus Ryan Peterson. And um, he was also convicted of first-degree premeditated murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of release in Minnesota. Um, His conviction was affirmed in 2018. The murders occurred in March of 2016. Mr. Peterson had hired a defense, criminal defense attorney to represent him in some criminal and civil matters. <clears throat> and he had agreed to pay a flat rate. He made a payment, uh, part of the flat rate, but he didn't pay the full amount. And then uh, that was in March. And in April, he terminated the attorney's representation and then began demanding a refund. Um, He sent a series of text messages between the attorney and Mr. Peterson seeking help with a parking issue. The attorney said, I'm not going to help you with that. And then Mr. Peterson began demanding full refund of his, uh, the part of the retainer that he had paid. Um, When he did not get the answer that he wanted from the attorney, he went to the attorney's office where a 23-year-old law clerk by the name of Chase Passore was uh, alone in the office, and uh, he 
went into the office angry and intent on getting his money back and shot Mr. Pasur, uh several times and then left the building and made incriminating statements to his girlfriend. And uh, apparently he thought he'd shot, and w- shot the lawyer, not a law clerk in the office. Uh, Mr. Peterson was charged with the murder the following day. And then uh, he was charged with second-degree murder. But after, I guess, further investigation, the uh, text messages and things like that between the attorney and Mr. Peterson led to the charge being amended to charge him with first-degree murder. Um, He had also, like I said, made some uh, statements to his girlfriend about... uh, uh, He had told his girlfriend he was going to shoot the lawyer, and that pretty much, you know, shows premeditation right then and there. Um... So <clears throat> that was uh, the the district court had found that Peterson was angry and upset over the attorney's uh, perceived failure to assist him and return his money, and that he would he had made threats of punching the attorney in the face. He had clearly contemplated violence in securing the return of his money, and with that in mind, he drove several miles to the office, walked up a flight of stairs, entered the law office, didn't find the attorney, and was dissatisfied with the law clerk's inability to help him, so he pulled a loaded gun from his waist and fired several times and shot and killed the law clerk. So, again, this one is... uh, was affirmed in 2018. Uh, So he's going to be appealing his for many years to come. And that is, those are the cases that, you know, that I wanted to look at. Uh, I apologize for the fumbling and the, (laughs) the fumbling and stumbling that I've done this evening. Um, But this, this is one of the hard things with, uh, Proving premeditation and deliberation is that what is premeditation to one juror may not be sufficient premeditation to another. Uh, It's always going to be circumstantial evidence. There's never going to be any kind of forensic evidence or even physical evidence. Because even if you find a videotape or a note or a diary or a checklist written by the assailant, or perpetrator, uh, those things are still open to some interpretation. And what you find in a lot of cases, advocates or the individuals uh, convicted of murders themselves will give alternate explanations. They will say, well, yeah, I said I'm going to kill him, but I didn't mean it. Or I said I'm going to kill him, but I was joking. Um, The... Uh, Jody Arias' case, she said, well, I had a good reason to have those gas cans because I was driving through the desert. And when you're driving through the desert, you don't want to drive through the desert without 
extra gas because you never know when you might find another gas station. Um, and then, again, the public has a lot of misconceptions about what premeditation is, what, how it's proven, how it should be proven. And also, they think that if you have a bad plan, then it's as, much, as good as no plan at all. So if a person concocts a murder plan and ends up getting caught within a couple of days, they'll, you'll see arguments from advocates. Well, you know, if he was really planning it, he would have done this or he would have done that or he would have done something else. And it, it doesn't matter. The plan alone, whether it's a good plan or a bad plan, it's a plan. And it evidences an intent to cause the victim's death. And believe that's enough. So that is premeditation deliberation. So do you have any questions, Michael? Uh, Not really. Okay. <laughs> Definitely laid it out in a very straightforward way. I mean, you made a good, some very good points, and I really enjoyed your back and forth with uh, Brad. And learned a lot. I did, I did. I did too. So I wish Sean would have called in so that he could talk about your election night show. Yeah, that would be nice. But I mean, it's pretty <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> pretty straightforward. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's going to be – now, you're going to be covering the midterm elections as well as local we Arkansas. We're going to be covering the national results. We are going to report on the Arkansas okay. results, but we're going to pretty much cha- uh, be following the race for the House and the Senate and okay. uh, pretty much everything else. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's going to be – I'm not political, so I'm going to leave and that – to you and Sean. I do want to. I do also want to uh, make mention of another uh, of another show that's getting ready to uh, start up here in the coming weeks. Uh, it's actually Brad's going to be coming back and forth with the uh, coming back with the. It's going to be like behind the curtain, but it's going to be a little bit different. We've got a guy named Cody that's going to come on. Uh, that's going to be talking, so it's going to be a conspiracy show. It's going to be on um, Wednesday nights, I believe, and I'm okay. actually working on that. So, uh, we're working on it. Uh, I am looking for the name of it. I do apologize. That's um, okay. Well, I, I'll be posting it on the. Uh, I'll be posting it on the Facebook here before too long, and uh, okay. we will go from there. But we that definitely uh, look forward to it. Yeah, we definitely look forward to it. It's going to be based completely on conspiracy theories. Uh, it's going to be myself, Mr. Uh, Brad Hicks, and Cody. Uh, it's the Plain Sight podcast. Uh, it's going to be about conspiracy, mysteries, and, of course, murders. So I uh, definitely okay. be looking forward to that coming up in the very near future. <clears throat> keep keep, uh, keep uh, updated on that. Oh, that sounds great. Oh, that sounds great. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I wanted to make mention of that. All right. 
Well, I think we're done. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join Michael Carnahan and guest co-host Sean Castleberry next week for Episode 28, Election Night. Michael and Sean will discuss the 2018 midterm elections for seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, along with some of the local races in Arkansas for governor and other state officers. They'll be discussing candidates, party affiliations, platforms, and results as they come in. Michael and I will be back on Tuesday, November 13th, 2018, for Episode 29, State of Texas versus Darlie Routier. On June 6, 1996, Routier's two sons, Devin and Damon, were stabbed to death in the living room of their home in Rowlett, Texas. Their mother, Darlie, claimed that an intruder broke into the house during the night, but her injuries were not as grave as those of her two sons, and authorities suspected that the evidence of a break-in had been staged. Darley was eventually arrested and charged with Devin and Damon's murders. She was convicted of Damon's murder and sentenced to death in February 1997. We'll discuss the evidence against Routier, the irregularities that delayed her direct appeal, and the post-conviction claims that she's made, as well as post-conviction DNA testing. Um, these claims and uh, challenges are all still working their way through the Texas state courts, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Everybody have a safe Halloween. Uh, Remember, salt and iron are good for ghosts and various types of monsters, silver for werewolves, vampires. It depends on what universe you follow, if it's the Buffyverse, a stake through the heart. If it's supernatural, then you have to cut off their heads. Uh, Stay safe, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Night.